I am Rebecca, and I am a Moody slash Pearl. I'm Carolyn, and I am a Lexi slash Izzy. I'm Teresa, and I'm just a Moody, and we are Big Little Podcast, here to talk about episode seven of Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere, called Picture Perfect. We're still in quarantine, hiding in podcast forts and closets. It's it's also the middle of April and snowing, wet, heavy snow today, and there are branches Ooh. down all over my car, and the power has been in, in and out this morning, so we'll see how this whole recording thing goes, and if it sounds like there are bodies dropping on my roof, it's just snow. Um, sure, Jan. <laughs> yeah. How, how are you guys doing this week? Uh, chaotic. <laughs> As we were just talking about mm-hmm. before recording, this has been a really oddly busy week for me here in quarantine with having a lot a lot to do and uh, having to deal with a lot of like technology of turning in, you know, uh, video videos from home for a show segment and uh, doing like a radio show and doing this and um, other things. I, I'm like ready to throw my computer out the window <laughs> into the snowstorm. Which, yep. why is there snow? Yeah. Why? It's inexplicable. I was fine with everything, like never leaving the house again. And when I woke up this morning and saw the snow, I was like, a plague wasn't enough? Really? You're going to keep us inside and now it's going to snow? Like, I, it's April what? I don't even know what day of the week it is. April 18th. Not okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm not pleased. There is a heron in the pond outside of our house and there's snow on the ground. I don't, oh. I don't know what's happening anymore. Talk um, about uncanny. It's yeah. <laughs> um, well, now that we're done bitching, Rebecca, do you want to catch us up on what's happening in Shaker Heights this week? Sure. And I just realized there is some nice continuity here because it is Christmas time in Shaker right now. So, you know, maybe <laughs> nature is just trying to bring the realism to this podcast. So we cold open to a longer haired Izzy attending your quintessential high school basement party. And when a round of spin the bottle lands her and her best friend in the closet, they end up exchanging a tender moment and kiss like they've done so many times before. But just when they really seem to be connecting, the door bursts open and Izzy's friend shoves her off and cries assault. Back in the present, BB's custody trial begins. Bill is representing the McCulloughs and in his cross-examination, he used pictures of Mei Ling's frostbitten hands to contradict BB's story about not remembering the abandonment of the baby. In a recess, Elena confronts Mia about her surrogacy for the Ryans and threatens exposed to the truth when Mia testifies as Bibi's character witness. Mia tells Pearl she plans to testify, and Pearl, having heard a rumor Mia is paying for Bibi's legal fees, accuses her of secretly being rich. Mia cops to the Pauline portrait, and Pearl, I cannot speak today, Pearl furiously kicks her out of her room. Back at school, a casual run-in with Brian leads Moody to suspect that Pearl has been lying to him. The reason for these little lies? She's still boning Trip, and in Moody's beatnik hideout, no less. Lexi gets into Yale, but has learned nothing about her privilege or identity plagiarism, as evidenced by her startling racist behavior at McDonald's later. Brian ends up jumping at her after school, uh, telling Lexi that he doesn't, all of this, like, I don't see color stuff she keeps saying is nonsense. Izzy reaches out to her ex-friend to get some cabbage fat dolls for an art project and confronts her about what happened in the closet. They confess how much they miss each other, but the next day when Izzy installs her Cabbage Patch masterpiece about buying racial minority babies, her friend is still a bitch. Provocative art is clearly not on the Shaker curriculum, so Izzy gets sent home. But if unwoke schools and her sapphic plight weren't punishment enough, Izzy is further belittled when Elena informs her it's hard being your mom. 
Nia has her court appearance, and Bill wastes no time questioning Nia's finances and motivations, but stops short of outing her for stealing Pearl. This displeases Elena, who, gleef who is gleefully anticipating Mia's public downfall. Mia returns home to find Izzy there, and the two bond over their shared hatred of Elena and Izzy's art project. Mia wastes a little time calling Izzy out for using blackface on one of the dolls and explains you don't get to challenge people without being challenged back, which seems kind of like advice she should probably take herself. The episode closes with Elena spilling the tea to Pearl. We don't get to hear what she says, but it's clear from a reaction that whatever Elena has told her brings Pearl to tears. And that's where we leave. This is our second to last episode, too, it's worth noting. So the stage is set for some conflict. High drama coming next week. Um, so I feel like this week's episode should be the kids are all right. because yeah. So I just <laughs> want to start talking about the kids. Um, let's talk about Izzy first, because I feel like I called it when I said Izzy's shitty friend was totally into it until she got caught. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me, uh, like, I had completely forgotten about a story from, like, when I was in, I don't know, middle school, maybe. Like, there were two girls who were friends who, like, everybody knew had made out. And it was, like, I'm sh I mean, I was so, like, out of the loop that I certainly wasn't making fun of them. But I knew that other people were. Um, and, Rebecca, you've sort of mentioned that in your oh, yeah. school, like, it, like the lesbian... Uh, the lesbian except stamp was the death knell. Yes, it was, except that there was so much. Now, I, I've learned this in hindsight. Mm -hmm. There was so much experimentation going on. And since, mm -hmm. you know, people have come into a more modern time, not that this wasn't, you know, this was only, I graduated in 2009. So it wasn't, it's, it's still more woke than the 90s. But it was, it wasn't until years later that people actually started coming out and anything prior to that was kind of cloaked either in, oh, it's a party and it was done because guys think it's sexy when girls kiss or mm -hmm. it was like a, we're just practicing kind of thing. There was no like acknowledgement of it being like genuine feeling. So I think that that's where this, you know, is different that these two girls really did like each other and they don't know how to they don't even have the language for it let alone the space to explore that which is you know how I'm sure it was for a lot of girls in my high school too yeah I mean I the two girls I'm thinking of who I won't name because they deserve to go through the rest of their lives without being haunted by this like one thing like I don't think either of them actually ever came out as far as I know they're not actually lesbians it was just again like girl experimentation but I still thought it was kind of bold that Izzy was like, yeah, let's do this in the closet yeah. with everybody like nearby. Like that's the, and the friend seemed to think that was a little bold too. Well, I think that uh, Izzy, I, I think that in Izzy's case, these are her genuine feelings. Right. Um. So I, I think that, you know, you're bold when you feel that sense of conviction. And it's like, really, this is, I, I think that she genuinely had um, like deep, deep feelings for her friend. So it was a different, and I, I do think like in the friend's case, it was probably, it might be uh, like, yes, they were friends, but more experimental. And also like Izzy is the kind of person who doesn't care what other people think ever whereas her friend obviously does so um i think that that was the big the big difference in this moment well i also think the a significant line that seemed almost like a throwaway was that izzy had said well we've done this not like we haven't done this before and the implication in that mm -hmm. line to me wasn't they'd done it once or twice it was something that they had been doing pretty regularly 
So I think yeah. for Izzy, it was like, what's the difference? We've been doing this. Yeah. And, and the friend is like, well, I mean, the difference is our high school peers could walk in at any minute, which is exactly what happened. Do I also think mm-hmm. it was heavy handed that all of this had to take place in a closet during seven minutes in heaven or whatever? Yes. Like, really? <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> this show. Um, so speaking of heavy, heavy handed, let's talk about Izzy's art and her art. So much high concept art. (laughs) She reaches back out to said friend to get her Cabbage Patch doll collection, um, which, which I first thought was a euphemism. I was like, okay, girl, Cabbage Patch kids. Sure. But I was like, oh no, she really (laughs) wants the doll. So I get it. Also like who had that many Cabbage Patch kids? Yeah, that was a lot. I mean, I feel like I had quite a few Cabbage Patch Kids, but I even I didn't have that many. Like, that was, like, th- there were, like, 25 of them. That was insane. Those things were expensive in the 80s. Yeah. Why do Cabbage Patch like Kids look weird... like a decomposing bloated body, too? Like, their faces look like <laughs> yeah. they've been found in a like river. It seemed like a weird thing to have, like, 20 of or more. Like, she just had boxes full of them. I think it would have been more believable had they been Barbies, but, like, obviously mm-hmm. that wouldn't have worked as well for what you know, they needed for the tool that they were trying to do in writing for her creating her art. But uh, it just felt so contrived to me. Like if they were, at least had been like all other dolls or something and not just all a bunch of cabbage patches. I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking if they'd just been a bunch of random mismatched dolls who were all like missing their clothes and like one eye at this point, that would have been a little yeah. bit more believable. Um, but I do, I gotta say drawing the armpit hair on the... <laughs> On the Cabbage Patch Kids was like and elsewhere hair. <laughs> uh, it oh god, it was sort of ridiculous. And I was kind of like, I'm not, I'm not even sure what the whole statement is here. It, like, I mean, there's like famous people's faces on it. I mean, I guess it was just, you know, that's whose faces you can get out of a magazine. I, it was bizarre. I don't know. Yeah, especially because she used like adult faces on the mm-hmm. baby. Um, and at first I thought that her art statement was going to have something more to do with like the BB baby trial, Mm -hmm. um, and be sort of like a protest to that. And I'm still not, I'm still not convinced that it maybe. I mean, it's definitely somehow connected in her mind that maybe that's where she was going, but it just kind of seemed a little bit off. Like I wasn't sure which, if it was connected or not. Well, it was, I think, because it said, like, they're trying to buy, you know, she puts a price on the babies and the Asian babies, I think it says, like, $10,000. Right, but which she is... didn't put, she didn't really, like, I don't know, she, she didn't, like, drive that point home. And I think that that would have made her art project a little bit more um, solid. And well, there is that scene when she's walking into school with the girl who's raising money. And she Mm -hmm. interacts with her and donates to the raising money, I should say, for BB's legal fees. And Mm -hmm. so I think then the next shot is her putting the note in the friend's locker about the Cabbage Patch doll. So I think they're supposed to set that up as like, this is her moment of artistic inspiration and then see how this comes to fruition under the artist's subtle grasp. I don't know. Right. And I guess because she's like a 13, 14 year old kid, it's not like a fully formulated idea. Right. So, well, yeah, well, that's where I start getting confused, because we know as the audience that her mother literally tried to buy this baby for ten thousand um, dollars. But does does Izzy know that? I don't think so, right? Like, she's not at the trial or anything. That's not like public knowledge unless she's heard something around the house. And then... And then, you know, there's a part where 
I think one of the students says something about like why why does it cost less for like the black babies and he's like that's racist and she's like yeah that's the point and so it's like I mean I think we're supposed to understand this as a half-baked artistic statement on her part but I'm also just not even clear on what it's supposed to be like is it about racism in general is it about her parents trying to buy babies is it like I don't know I think this episode really suffered for being too choppy and jumping around a lot like we would get like scenes Mm -hmm. that were less than 30 seconds long and then you'd move back to the kids then you'd be back to especially these Bill and Elena arguing scenes there were like six of them and it felt like the argument was the same argument and yet it was chopped up both like in the form of the show and in space and time. And I kept like, when I was trying to write the recap, getting really confused as to what was happening when, because of the way they'd structured it. And I do think there was a scene early on in the beginning when they're in the kitchen and something comes up about uh, Mia using the art money to pay for BB's legal fees. I think I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm trailing off because now I'm doubting myself because this show confuses me, but I do think, and that, and Izzy was privy to that. So I think that's where that came from. So me is the one trying to buy babies in her mind. I don't, that just is even more confusing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. know. Let's move on. Um, (laughs) so after Elena gets called to school, she tells Izzy it's hard to be her mom. And so of course, Um, Izzy runs to Mia, who calls her art problematic, which it is, but in 1997, no one used that word that way. Yeah. So it's yet another example of the writers not quite getting the 90s right here. Um, (laughs) But then there's also this conversation, like this conversation about their art and about who they are, like, doesn't make sense to me at several different points. One is when Mia says to to Izzy, this place made you, you're not an exception because you want to be. Right. And, and I'm like, well, I'm confused. Like, she's not allowed to be different or think differently or um, try to break away from the pact because she's from the pack because she's from there. Like, I, I don't Ugh, even know what that's supposed to mean. This moment was yet another moment where I wanted to, like, shake Mia and be like, stop being such a fucking bitch. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I finally, I think Mia's most tender and genuine moments, arguably throughout this show, have been with Izzy. Right. The interaction between the two of them. And then in this moment, uh, I was so afraid that it was going to, like, go the same way of what she did to the sister when, like, Lexi is sitting there, like, having just had an abortion and is mm-hmm. genuinely just looking to have a woman-to-woman talk, and she, like, bitch-slapped her with her, you know, angry face uh, snarkisms and attack. And then now she has, like, Izzy in that kitchen, and I was like, oh, no, don't do it to her, too. So I was kind of relieved that, you know, she managed to, like, sort of, for Mia, back down and kind of have a discussion with Izzy about why she felt like her art didn't land and then like you know challenge her and say like well you can't challenge people if you're not willing to be challenged and sort of turn it into a teaching moment where she pretty much you know took on the role of like Pauline with her Mm -hmm. uh so I was a little bit relieved I was still mad at it but I was relieved that it didn't I I was so afraid that that was gonna like go the same way as the Lexi scene yeah, I honestly, why, I felt a little different with this. It didn't bother me as much as previous conversations she's had with children. I felt that, you know, trying to get Izzy to understand the nature of privilege 
is something that that is important. And just because Izzy is an outsider does not mean she has not been informed by the fact that she's grown up in a very affluent white area. And I think Mia, you know, trying to coax that out of her and explain like, no, you can't use blackface because of this privilege and you don't get to choose to be every part of an outsider. There are parts of you that are always going to be an insider, whether you like that or not, simply based on the fact that you have been born to this enormous amount of class privilege and racial privilege. I didn't mind that as much. And I think yeah, it was well, that's what nice, I'm saying, that it yeah. was It was a nice was parallel, better. too, I thought, to Brian's conversation with Lexi. And I thought that was actually a much more successful conversation in, like, helping somebody really confront. And I don't think Lexi was open to it, and it wasn't a success. But I thought that Brian's words and Brian's approach was a really nice scene. Yeah, like, I don't disagree with you that that's a conversation they should be having. Um, I'm just, again, I think it's in the writing here. Like, I'm like... Yeah. They didn't, they, she didn't really say what you just said, right? Yeah, like, I know. She just said, she just made this statement that's supposed, that like this 13 year old girl is supposed to somehow get all of that out of. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, it's and true. So, and I, yeah, yeah. I like the line, you know, you don't get to challenge without being challenged back. But if you're not actually going to mm-hmm. continue that dialogue, if it's just like, nope, this is, I'm going to push back and you just have to take it as opposed to letting mm-hmm. Izzy sort of like work in that space and work through it. I think maybe that's the problem with Mia generally is she doesn't want to have a conversation. She wants to tell you. Right. And, and that's difficult. <laughs> and she doesn't actually want to be challenged back, which let's jump to talking about Pearl because then we can talk about how Mia doesn't actually want to be confronted about her own bullshit ever. Um, so Mia is sort of forced to tell Pearl half the story of her origin and admits to sitting on damn near half a million dollars for her entire life, (laughs) um, which I was confused about at first because I was like, I thought she got like $30,000. Yeah, me too. Like, and so, and then I guess we just understand that she actually got a whole lot more, but it was $30,000 that she needed for the legal fees. Right. Um, also, I'm and, sorry, is a photograph ever that expensive? I have a hard time believing that photograph nearly earned her half a mil that, that I struggle with. Yeah. That. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I'm not in the art world. I don't know. But, um, but so then, you know, Pearl is rightly angry like you make me sleep on the floor and you know be humiliated by asking for free lunch at school when you've been sitting on half a million dollars like i'm not asking to live in a mansion i'm asking to have a bed um consistently and mia's reaction is this life not fancy enough for you and i just want just fuck off mia just fuck off like you don't understand what you've done to this child and pearl rightly is sort of like what have i had i've had a hundred beds like you've given me no stability and i thought this was a really successful conversation um yeah and it feels like different writers are writing some of these conversations because we get it all from this conversation. No, I totally agree. And I do think that, you know, the Lexi Underwood does such a great job of conveying all of our frustrations with Mia too. I mean, it's not just the frustrations of a 16 year old kid. She is speaking for all of us. We're like, what is actually wrong with you, Mia? Like, this is just so far beyond a mother's, you know, a mother daughter angsty relationship. Like she's behaving like a straight up sociopath. I also don't understand where me, I guess the class thing makes sense to me, like why I should be resentful of certain class things. But this like specific crusade against things that are fancy, like Mia didn't seem like she came from like such, I, I guess there is that like, oh, this is a bad neighborhood thing. But I, but that seemed almost to me just like 
all the because first of all that neighborhood w- didn't look bad it right like a the normal. neighborhood was like a nice mm-hmm. suburb i'm like i'm really confused. and her house that she grew up in with her own bedroom her own ample lovely. bedroom so i'm like if she was impoverished yeah. and grew up on the streets like i could understand this bitterness against people like elena but it's like she came from she was living in that beautiful apartment in manhattan too like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, she was probably living in rent-free because she, Pauline, was taking care of her. Um, so the her, a rent-free, beautiful situation in New York with a you know woman that she loved, and mm-hmm. I mean, Mia, it feels to me like she's trying to create this like school of hard knocks thing, but it's not really ever what her what what her existence was and what we now know in great detail. Yeah. So I don't know, and I. Pearl's reaction was a hundred percent appropriate and well written and really beautifully performed. Um, by what is this young actress's name that I'm now obsessed with? Lexi, Lexi Underwood. Underwood. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So I I just this it's funny because like this episode to me really started to cement uh Reese Witherspoon's character Elena as like the villain like by the end I was like oh look at her face that is villain she has like taken that on but Mia the whole time has been uh, kind of uh totally unlikable and and a equally like deplorable character and in this scene I I just I I wanted like Pearl to just be like I'm leaving yeah (laughs) I was really satisfied by the fight scene and for the first time a little bit impressed by Carrie Washington's acting mm-hmm. because she seemed so thoroughly um, disturbed by Pearl's reaction to her. Like she seemed really like shaken up and like, and it, I thought it was so interesting to see someone really just hand Mia her, her own ass and be like, yeah. mm-hmm. you're a monster lady. And for her to really take it in. So part um, of me was like, I think she really took it in, and this is the first time that Mia's ever heard somebody, like when they you know, push back against her, maybe in her life. Yeah. But then part of me is also like, I don't know if her upset is coming from the words, the reaction to Pearl's words, or it's coming from the fact that she knows inevitably Pearl's gonna find out that, you know, the whole situation with the Ryans and she's gonna mm-hmm. lose Pearl. I think where that's where that's coming from more is that she's like worried about the threat of losing the kid more so than like, yeah, I've been kind of a shitty parent. I, I don't know. I don't feel like there's enough self-awareness there with Mia. Yeah, she's definitely much more concerned about losing Pearl, who she always says, she's mine. Yeah. It's like this sense of ownership. It's not like, I love her. I raised her. She's right. a part of me. We have this life together. It's always just like, she's mine. She doesn't even seem to really like Pearl. Like, she's not asking Pearl what's going on in her life. She's not, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like they're doing art together. She clearly likes Izzy, but there's not been enough to show me like the depth mm-hmm. and the love in their relationship it's more just like Mia is obsessed with the idea of owning her daughter and I think the fact that you know she named her Pearl something that you know is inherently like an oyster formed, yeah right. that the oyster clasps around and yep. protects and builds yeah and something I mean, you keep you know a pearl is not a, a creature that's out free it's something that is harvested and used as an adornment and I feel like that's how she looks at her daughter is like this this thing of ownership and this thing of adornment and if she doesn't subscribe to Mia's worldview she's just kind of like all right whatever paint three walls in your room I don't really care and I I mean she's not even paying enough attention to Pearl to know that she's out banging trip in Moody's like trash hut 
in like which in and of it you know on the one hand i want to be like good on you pearl like tell your mom that she's a monster but then i'm like really you're using moody's trash hut to bang his stupid brother like this this is such a garbage move on both their parts such a garbage although move. in this episode in the scene where they're in the little trash hut uh i did find that trip was an engaging and caring young man with her like he he was actually you know having trying to have a conversation and trying to help uh i i felt like i i respected him more in this moment than i thought i would or wanted to i think, <laughs> I think so the bar too men is low <laughs> i think yeah. yeah i think i just have like garbage taste in men and i'm like no no no, no this is fine but it's like <laughs> i mean i don't but think I, I don't think she's wrong i think we're starting to see trip like I mean, I this comes from the book as well. Like, we, yeah. Rebecca and I were a little bit surprised by the initial treatment of the relationship between Pearl and Trip because in the book, it starts out much more this way. Like, he, yep. he sees her as special from the very beginning and is surprised by his own reaction to her, really. Like, um, mm-hmm. and that's what we're starting to see now. Yeah. So I don't think you're wrong. I just think they could go do it somewhere other than poor Moody's like sanctuary. Like he's already stolen the girl his brother is in love with. Now he's going (laughs) to, he might as well just take her into his room and bang her in her bed. Like it's, it's horrible. They're, they're terrible. It's not cool. No, I'm not, I'm not condoning that aspect Mm -hmm. uh, at all. No, there's there's more depth to him. And I do think in the previous mm -hmm. episode when he tried to reach out to Izzy, you know, mm-hmm. they've mm-hmm. planted the seeds that he's a good guy that's caught up in toxic male culture TM. I just think, you know, both of them are behaving <laughs> like 16-year-olds. I mean, and unfortunately, that's yeah. what 16-year-olds do. There's not a ton of options out there to have sex unless you want to do it in a car. And I don't think Elena would be down for them to be doing it in her house. I don't think Mia would be down for it. Not, I mean, they should have just done it. I, I don't think Mia kidding. would notice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's I not. Mean, yeah. She doesn't notice. She wouldn't care. So I don't know why they're using me, uh, Mia, Moody's little sad boy shack. Um, <laughs> so much like Izzy, Pearl runs to the mom she actually wants and talks to Elena, who then we have to assume tells her the whole truth about, yeah. you know, where oh, she came sure. from. Uh, so on a scale of one to ten, how big a piece of shit is Elena for telling Pearl <gasps> the truth Ooh, i mean i think she's a pretty big piece of shit in this whole episode <laughs> yeah and that yeah, was not she, cool so yeah it really oh this is like where elena just like slid off i mean she was kind of like teetering on the cliff of like jumping into full-on villain and at this moment she just like took a big beautiful swan dive into it i think it was was the moment she cut her daughter out of the christmas cards that was the one (laughs) oh yeah yeah what the hell oh god the tart and then to like leave it in the trash like right on the top savage like yeah that was that was fucking menacing but uh this moment like but that's her own family like that that's her business the second that she did this in this menacing way like knowing you know knowing that she had no business doing this uh is but she thinks really... it's her business she doesn't think it's not her business she absolutely thinks this is my business mm-hmm. because i care for this kid and her mother's lying to her and doing her this disservice mm-hmm. and she deserves to know the truth elena's narrative is not that i'm doing this because i want to be a villain she thinks that this is the right thing and mia is just a, a you know 
a liar. I don't know, though. No, Does she, she? That look she gives her when she's, like, dropping her off in the car and she oh, gives Oh, it's personal. But I don't think that she thinks that her motivations are bad. I think that she, in her worldview, everything she's doing is the correct right thing. Well, I think there's a point at which she goes from being a person who's just trying to help her friend keep the baby she's grown to love. And, and as soon as Bill doesn't use the information she's gathered to help the... Um, what are, yeah, what the, are the other people? The McCulloughs, yeah. Um, to help the McCulloughs keep the baby. And then it just becomes vindictive, right? Because now the only, you know, she said, she says, you said everybody was going to pay. And she mm-hmm. doesn't think Mia's being forced to pay. So she's going to basically take her daughter from her. Yeah. She's I'm, taking yeah. justice into her own hands. But again, like, I mm-hmm. think her motivation is that this is justice. And it's not like... You know, I don't think there's guilt. I don't think she's going to go to bed after this and feel bad. She's going to go to bed and be like, nailed it. This was the right thing to do. <laughs> and if she were doing it because she was worried that that Mia had stolen someone's baby, which she more or less did, um, I might have a little bit more sympathy. But I think she's doing it because... Be- just because she's mad at Mia, because because Linda, she fe- you know she says why doesn't anyone blame Mia? She's the bad guy here, which I I think starts the root of that feeling sort of starts with her being the one who told BB where the baby was, right? I think that's what she's the most mad about that she that Mia is the person who kicked off this chain of yeah. events, right? And she's the one responsible for bringing Mia into everybody's lives, so. I could sort of understand being like, listen, you do have a father and you had another, you know, sort of mother who cared about you and loved you. Like, I could almost understand wanting to tell a kid that, maybe not right then, but um, but I don't think that's why Elena's doing it. I think Elena's doing it for because she's mad that Mia fucked up her world, not because she fucked up someone else's world. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. All right, let's move on to Lexi who is getting her ass dumped in this in Ooh. this episode. Um, it's one of the weirdest breakup scenes I've ever seen, um, where Brian is like, why can't you see me as black? Which is totally an interesting question for society, and I think... Um, but it seems to be a bizarre conversation for two high, high schoolers to be yeah. having while they're breaking mm-hmm. up. Um, I feel like that should have been like the adults having that conversation or like Mia using those words to with her conversation with Izzy. It did feel like a little too woke for high school students. But Brian yeah. has been consistently like a, a pretty clear voice of reason. So maybe he's just super mature. And I think that he really began to think about this in that context and how she sees the world and how Mm -hmm. she may see black people when she stole uh, Pearl's story for her essay. I think that that was obviously the big trigger for him to start thinking differently and to see and to see that Lexi thinks thinks and sees things differently than maybe he thought he did because you know they've been dating a while they're in high school they are they're young and and live in a you know both of them pretty like sheltered sheltered lives and I think like this was a moment where he saw that she really does see things differently than you know he than than he would want her to I mean just stealing an essay from anyone regardless of race Mm -hmm. is really uh that's really shitty. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I think this is an interesting question, right? And it's one that doesn't get explored too much in popular culture, this idea, because it's almost like a comment on the 90s, right? Where there was like this colorblind theory in the 90s that has sort of evolved now where like, no, you have to acknowledge that different people have different experiences based on their skin color. And you can't just pretend everybody's the same. And we don't, I can't think of a lot of things that really um, explore that too much because it's such a nuanced thing to try to convey. So I almost wish like, but again, it's one of these things that like I was watching, I was watching the scene and, you know, Lexi brings up the pressure to be perfect, which we were kind of talking about last week. Like this is um, the pressure that Elena and Lexi are under and the confines of their social stratus is is having to be perfect all the time and then i was like oh they're just throwing everything the show is about at us in this one conversation yeah that's Uh a little bit like what it like nothing's getting explored deeply enough instead it's just get they're, they're just like here's what the show's about here in this breakup scene if you if you missed all of it in the past six and a half episodes like <laughs> we're gonna sum it up for you in this argument well, I will, so, you know how I have that theory that if you, like, jump into a show, a series, if mm-hmm. you're trying to watch a new series, you can jump, you should jump in, like, you know, two or three episodes in, you can always go back and pick up any other pieces, but it helps you sort of get a feeling for the show and, and like it more sometimes than just what, when you start with a pilot episode. Mm-hmm. For me, like, this episode, uh because we are like rounding to our home base here, I did feel that uh, this episode had a lot more going on. Yes, uh, to Rebecca's point, it was a little bit like too much like cutting around and things were happening quickly. But, and to that, to your point, Teresa, like, mm-hmm. yeah, there it was trying to like kind of wrap everything up and, and show us like, here's what we're talking about. These are the key points of what we're trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that because we're sort of building to that big crescendo moment, we're getting all these other little pieces. Plus this episode had to like bring us back down into the show after last week's like batshit crazy episode of flashback (laughs) where we like have been away from these characters for, you know, two weeks now. Yeah. Um, so I actually, I wanted to like start talking about Mia versus Elena a little bit and... I wanted to kick that off by asking Carolyn, if you had to guess how this plays out from here, <laughs> who do you think wins the court case and who do you think burns down the house? Oh, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, You know, I found myself a- like asking while I was watching this episode, I was actually asking myself those questions and trying to figure this out because I feel like this show, I am like so unable to predict anything that's happening. I keep, every time I think something, like they go a different way. And it's not like in a good surprising, like, wow, what great writing. It's in this kind of like, like really we're fucking doing this kind of way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm just gonna like swing wild here, keeping that in mind because I think that this show has been swinging wildly at things. I think that BB is going to win the court case, and I think that 
I, I think that, like, Mia somehow is going to be involved in the fire in their house, but it's actually... And I like her so much, and I don't actually think she'd do this, but I'm going to, like, wildly say that somehow, like, Izzy being fueled by Mia, and maybe, like, they that they do this. I don't know. I'm just, like, speculating wild, because this show has given me nothing that I, I wanted or expected or really... <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I'm at. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, obviously I know the book answer, but I'm not convinced they're going to go with the book an- the book's ending. So You're I'm not. Interested to, no, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Um, maybe they will. Maybe they'll surprise me. And, and they, they could. Like, at this point, it could play out exactly as we expected to as readers of the book. But I, I'm not sure they're going to do that. However, so we get a little bit of a hint from uh, Bill Pacey Richardson. Um, you know, he's basically not worried about losing this case. He says, people like B.B. Chow don't win, which, you know, truer words have never been spoken. Thank you, Pacey. Um, oh, wait, I have another one I want to throw in. Uh, I also think, like, Linda could possibly be a burn suspect, an arson oh, suspect here. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, that was one of the other, I forgot, I like wrote that down in my notes here when I was like watching that if BB does win this case, mm-hmm. Linda is going to be so distraught that her life is ruined. So she is going to like lash out and try to ruin Elena's. That was one of my other speculations I had going on. Okay. All right. Um, duly noted. Again, wild. <laughs> um, okay. So, so people like BB Chow don't win, right? And then... We see Bill um, not quite go for the jugular when he's got Mia on the stand. You know, he could out her as someone who stole a baby, um, and he doesn't. And Elena is pissed. And I'm not sure if he's doing this because he's mad at Elena and because she's basically witness tampering during this episode, and he's just being cautious and he feels like he's going to win this case anyway, or... Is he not sure he's on the right side anymore? I mean, I feel like in the book they give us an inkling that he he's not sure he should be he's on the right side, but I don't know if we've gotten that here. Well, I think we're getting like and the show is doing this on purpose. It's conflating the whole trial with the Elena versus Mia thing. So I think it's more he's right. realizing he's on the wrong side of the Elena versus Mia than the actual legal mm-hmm. thing. Like he's looking at his wife's behavior, he's looking at how she clearly wants vengeance and how worked up she was that he didn't bury Mia over something that really, you know, this is about BB's character, not Mia's. And yes, it could have put mm-hmm. poked holes in the character witness, but what would that really have served? It, it doesn't really have anything to do with BB. It's just that Mia is, um, you know, makes her choices. So I think that that those scenes, and especially the one at the end where he's smoking the cigarette and looking at the check that Elena had written, mm-hmm. for I, booze, right? Oh, is that? It what's, was just. Yeah, I had to pause it, and I, like, rewound and paused on the screen, and it was, like, for champagne and Merlot. Ah, uh, okay, so and, the like, so he's on to her Cabernet. with the uh, the ex, because that, that bill would be yeah. from the nightcap they had. Right, hmm Okay, well, yeah, so even more so, I think he's thinking, like, my wife is a monster, and I don't want to be married to her anymore. And he just saw the that she was cutting the pictures, like, this woman's a monster. I wouldn't want to be married to her either. Yeah, she's yeah. basically shitting on her best kid, like... Izzy is like yeah. Are, I like I would make an argument that Izzy is his favorite kid. Oh, and definitely. 
she he's sick of seeing like he gets a little chuckle when he realizes that she's flipping everyone the bird yeah. in the in the Christmas card. Oh, no, he goodness. loves her. He is. I hope yes. that like this show ends with him and Izzy leaving the family and going off and having like a buddy comedy in Los Angeles where he dates and she like does high concept art. How fun would that be? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, that, okay, the scene where she, like, loses her shit on poor Izzy, who has already put on the monkey suit of, like, whatever the hell tartan fantasy, mm-hmm. and then, like, but it draws the line at the Keds, which, like... Reasonable. You know, and then, yeah, yeah, reasonable. And then that, you know, she, like, loses her mind over that mm-hmm. is so, that is just, so- like, that, that, I think, shows her completely unraveling. Shot for Actually. shot, verbatim, this happened to me over Thanksgiving where my mom and I, <laughs> two months, I am 29 years old and my brother is 24. My mom decided she wanted to take a Christmas card picture even though we hadn't taken them in years and she insisted oh, that God. we all wear tartan. And I was like, Mom, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do this. So I showed up wearing like a green plaid flannel. My mom was like, oh, no, no. You have to put on this. And then pulls out like the most, uh, it looks like a poinsettia in tartan it was like you need to put this on and I put my fucking foot down I was like this is outrageous I am 29 and you best believe I walked out of that photo shoot and did not participate (laughs) I Uh, I really had Carolyn pegged for the one with the weird uh family photo story but uh, well since my parents got divorced I'm an adult child of divorce my mom is like trying to like reclaim our childhood <laughs> identity in a new way. We're just like, okay, we humor you to some extent, but I drew the line at the Tartan shirt. It's too much. Oh, my parents made us take like Christmas card photos where my mother selected outfits for us. Uh, my brother and I had like matching outfits, by the way, until I was like a young teenager. And <laughs> that's too late. Uh, we I would have killed were, everyone in the family. if We that. also were uh, put into colonial garb and forced to do colonial parlor plays for uh, <laughs> parties at my parents' house. I'm not That is some kidding. arrested development shit right there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, for sure. And, Rebecca, to your point of this happening as an adult, recently, not that long ago, we uh, were on a family vacation in Turks and Caicos, like the entire family. My brother is, like, married with... Uh, two little kids. We all took a family portrait on the beach in Turks, and now, we all had to have white. If and this white, was a photo only... shoot taking place on the beach in Turks and Caicos, I'd be singing a different tune. So just for okay, the record. Fair, <laughs> but my we had to have our white outfits approved by my mother. Oh. Like we had to show her what we were taking to wear in the photo. <laughs> this podcast has turned into a PSA: Do not make your children take themed Christmas pictures, or they will resent you. No. Also, please just stop sending me, in Ugh. particular, like, fo- family photos at Christmas anyway, yep. because I never know what to do with them. Me I'm like, too. It's I'm so like, annoying. I'm just going to throw your kids in the garbage. This seems wrong, but I also don't want pictures of your kids. So it's also a waste of paper. Send an email. Like, that's yeah. so much faster to be like, oh, cute kids. Holler. Merry Christmas. Yeah, isn't like, that the whole point What do you want me to do? Send like, you a Facebook? letter back? Like, dear Susan, your children look Fantastic. Mary Yuletide greetings. No, like, no. That's what Facebook commenting is for. Like, yeah. we see you on Facebook all the time. I can click like on it there. I don't need you to send me a printed version. That's just... Yeah, uh, my family a- throwdown started because I was like, I think the whole concept of sending Christmas cards is bizarre, especially when your children are grown-ups. It's very weird and unsettling, and that escalated into matching tartan, so... I feel like I got into an internet fight about this once when someone was asking some weird question about having these kinds of family photos taken. And I was like, why do people do this? 
Yeah. Like, I don't understand. I, 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 I mean, if it. you want to put on matching sweaters, just take your phone outside and take a picture. I, I really do not it's, understand it's, the concept. It's for the same reason that Elena wants to do it. You want to show yeah. people how picture perfect your family is, how attractive your kids are, how everybody's smiling and happy. And that was my whole reason argument with my mom. I'm like, this is such a falsity. Like, nobody wants to see these fake pictures of everybody smiling. I was like, if it was a funny picture, if we were all like wasted and passed out on the couch, <laughs> that would be A, more on brand for our family, and B, something that I would actually like to get in the mail yeah yeah agreed i would keep that up all year round one of the one of the responses i got to that comment though was like some a woman saying like if i didn't have pictures of me with my kids taken like i wouldn't be in any of the pictures because my husband oh. never takes photos and yeah. i was like that sounds like a personal problem yes. that you should work out with your husband like, yep I can't, I don't know how many pictures Brian takes of me just like sleeping on the couch with a dog. Like your husband doesn't take pictures of you and the kids. That's you, you married a garbage person. Like, um, yeah, yeah. new standards. Have... Ladies, if your man's not taking pictures of you while you're asleep, get yourself a new man. <laughs> <laughs> if he's taking too many pictures of yeah, you while also, you're asleep, though, get also yourself a new get man. Yourself... Oh my God. <laughs> change your phone uh, number and change your locks. <laughs> Oh, man. So, so we also get, like, the one of the lines I feel like they teased this show with a lot in this episode, which is the all-mother struggle, money just oh, hides yeah. it. Yeah. Um, is that basically just what this whole story is about? I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what this story is about at this point. <laughs> I mean, I think at its most interesting and its most engaging, this is a story about like the ownership and the identity of mothers and children and how that plays mm -hmm. into questions of biological birth versus adoption. Because I do think this show has kind of been undermining the fact that many people are raised in adopted households and absolutely consider those people their parents. There's not even a question. Mm -hmm. So this idea that of biological ownership I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think when you add the racial component to it, that's when the show is at its best and most interesting. At its worst, I think it's this, you know, motherhood is a struggle and these two women are both just damaged mothers and they hate each other. And that's the fuel for the I drama. Mean, that's less compelling to me. Absolutely. Than... Yeah, we've talked about this before. I think this show is at its best when it's like focusing on these kids. I think the like storyline and the acting and... Uh, the potential for, you know, really interesting scenarios and interesting ways of looking at the world is through these kids. And uh, I kind of wish that some of all this other stuff was like more, even more secondary to that. Um, and that, yes, you could be looking at these issues of, you know, struggling relationships with your parents or, you know, adoption and things like that. And like seeing it more more through the eyes, more through the lens of like Izzy, Lexi, Moody, Trip, Pearl. I, I would be, I'm, I'm much more in it for that. Yeah. I, I pretty much want a completely different show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this show is so focused on what it thinks it wants to be focused on that it's missing some of its own best parts. Like, yeah. right? Like, um, I do think the, I, you know, we've got these two mothers struggling with their daughters. And trying to own them each in their own way and finding that those daughters are seeking other mothers, basically. And then and then we've also got Bibi and Linda who are literally struggling over the same child. Like who gets who gets um you know, custody. And the 
the ownership story is really perhaps the most interesting thing that's going on here, but the writers are so obsessed with throwing all the racial questions that weren't in the book at us and right. and Lexi talking about having to be perfect and I, I and this weird affair story that came out of nowhere. They're just like throwing all these other things right. at us instead of concentrating on what's really great about the story uh, that And I would have been fine with the racial changes if mm -hmm. it played into the story and it really became a conversation about how the racial dynamic changes this question of ownership, if at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would have been something that I think would have been really compelling and really timely and people would have responded to. But instead, as you've said, they've kind of just thrown too much at us mm -hmm. and you're losing the, the resonance and the nuance that the book you know, did so masterfully without as many racial angles. And I think I wish that they had leaned more into it and instead of like, these moments where they want to go there, then they feel sort of like forced. Like the Brian thing was was a nice dialogue, but it didn't feel authentic because they've just been kind of like, remember, this is a story where there's race involved. And instead of like mm -hmm. having that be the story. Mm -hmm. So who's the worst parent this week? Ooh, Elena, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah. She gets that, my vote too. It's just like almost like cartoon villain too sometimes with them. Like they're like, we mm -hmm. have to remind you because last week you had sympathy for Elena. Now you have to be reminded Elena is bad. Like it just, yeah, it takes me out of the I, realism. Sitting there in the car. I mean, I expected her to like twiddle her fingers and like. Yeah, like twirl a mustache. Like <laughs> Disney villain-esque. Like it was pretty, uh, you know. Yeah, the direction her, in that last scene was just like comically bad. I'm also like yeah. a little bummed at Reese Witherspoon in general because we know she can deliver a much more nuanced portrayal of someone that has these unlikable characteristics but also is acting from a place in her mind of, of good intent. And mm -hmm. she's not bringing any of that. It is so no. one or the other. It's either she's being a good mom TM or she's being a monster. Well, I thought the episode where she does freak out on Izzy was actually a good example of Reese Witherspoon at her best, right? Yeah. Because we kind of yeah. get that she's unraveling it's not just about Izzy at this point, right? She's also, like, sort of losing yeah. the battle with Mia. And, yeah. and um, she's worried that Linda's going to blame her if she loses loses um, Mei Ling slash Mirabelle. And so she's got all these other pressures on her, and now this kid won't just wear the stupid shoes, right? And then... Um, and I thought that was a really good example of what she can do when she's given something to work with. But... Yeah. Um, you know, most of the time, like that last episode where it's just them exchange or that last scene where they're just exchanging glowering oh. glances. I was like, oh, my God, this is the worst. I um, really wish they'd ended it just with that scene where the camera pulls back and you can see through the window and Elena is having that conversation with Pearl that we don't get to hear. I wish that was the last <laughs> shot so badly that this is, I think, a, a show in general that could have really benefited, benefited for some editing. This episode felt mm -hmm. too long to me. Like, if they'd cut 10 minutes out of some of this other stuff, I think it would have been more impactful. I think this whole show could have done with some editing. Uh, I, I think that it does, there, it does tend to get, like, a little bit draggy and also, like... And then frenetic. Yeah. Yes. Like, it dragged for yeah. several episodes and then all of a sudden it's crazy. Right. Um, and not in, like, the fun way where you're, like, sucked in and so excited to, like, see what happens. Mm -hmm. it, it is. It's just kind of this um, mayhem of uh, 
uh, where like you're just kind of like holding on because you're like, well, I guess now I need to see this out. But like, really, <laughs> really, gang. Um, and I mean, I totally feel that the direct, whether it was the direction or Reese Witherspoon's own choices for her performance in that scene where she's sitting in a car, like I said, where she's mm-hmm. just become this like cartoonish villain. That that to me was like another moment of this kind of like jumping the shark completely of where, but it was like the equivalent of like what Carrie Washington's face has been doing this whole goddamn time. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe Carrie Washington is just ru- rubbing off on Reese Witherspoon at this point. And yeah. Like, like they're having like an overacting competition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so how about the nineties this week? What did you spot? What's your favorite nineties reference? So mine came right at the beginning when I'm actually not even, oh, it was, it was Izzy and her little friend on their way to the party. They have like a quick throwaway, throwaway line about hanging out at Borders. And like to me, <laughs> that was the late yeah. 90s and early 2000s. I spent so much time doing God knows what. I wasn't buying books. I was just meandering in Borders. And that to me really hit like, me Like she feels. said, reading magazines until they kick us out. It, <laughs> like, it was great. Borders for life. R.I.P. Barnes and Noble, not the same thing as Borders either. I will fight anybody that says otherwise. True, true. <laughs> Karen? Um, so I, uh, again, it was like towards the beginning of the episode when they're at that party and Izzy is wearing her cute little like, you know, her black Doc Martens and her kind of mm-hmm. like cute little, what they called the girl goes, how come you're dressed like you're going to combat? Yeah, the combat And boots. I can remember like... I can remember people saying things like that to other, to girls who would wear. And I always mm-hmm. like, I was like, God, I love her like badass outfit with her like Doc Martens and this kind of like the like chains, like sort of this, you know, that, that whole aesthetic of dressing that it wasn't quite grunge, but it had that like, you know, that grunge, like hard edge look. Uh, and I can, I can remember that and thinking how cool that looked uh, but it also, it kind of reminded me of like in Clueless where they were like, you could be a farmer in those clothes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there was kind of that, uh, that, the vibe of, of that really, um, that, that struck me. And also this is a weird nineties thing, mm-hmm. but, uh, Brian, when Brian and Lexi are driving in his car, oh, the Volvo, that, like Volvo, yes, right. That was mine. And everyone had that Volvo mm-hmm. and that really, uh, it, that seeing those kind of like those had the, the seat and everything. Yep. That, that took me back. Here's the thing about that Volvo though, because that was what, a that's what I was going to say that like at least 12% of the kids I went to high school with drove that car. Right. Because that was like mm-hmm. their parents' old car from the eighties that they'd given them. But yeah. I feel like that car is very much a signifier of like old money, white people. Hmm. Like, mm. like, like old money, white people have old Volvos and like beat up Sperry topsiders and um you know they don't need to show their money and therefore they just have this thing that you know cost a lot of money when they got it but they've had it forever you know it's let me say that my my dad's like was a very blue collar upbringing but then you know made his own mm -hmm. way in the world and the first car that he bought in Connecticut when he moved back here was a Volvo like that and I'd never get it two ounces of thought until now. And it certainly didn't register to me like it registered to you guys on the show. I didn't think twice about it. But now that you are having this conversation, I'm like, how interesting. Mm. Um, my also, my other favorite uh, 90s moment was when Carl is on the steps with 
Moody and um, Brian, and he suggests that maybe um, Pearl is having an affair with Bill oh, Richardson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he says, what? You know, it happens. Have you seen Poison Ivy? <laughs> and I just started dying, which I feel like it I was, I think it was Drew Barrymore, right, was in that movie. And she's like the teenage femme fatale who's... Um, seducing someone's dad it was uh, was, i don't know because i actually haven't seen it oh (laughs) well clearly you didn't have friends with like uh cinemax at like four in the morning or something when you were like 12 and you're at a sleepover and you're like oh my god what is this um uh it's sarah gilbert cheryl ladd drew barrymore and tom scarrett it came out in 1992 mm -hmm. an erotic film directed by cat shay (laughs) Tom Skerritt was in it? Dear Lord. Okay. Um, Yeah. um, Because I feel like there was then also like Poison Ivy 2 and Poison Ivy 3 that went like straight to video and I feel like it devolved into like Alyssa Milano or something instead (laughs) of Drew Barrymore. Poor man's Drew Barrymore. I know. Um, Do you guys have favorite songs from this episode? It was a very light musical episode. I think the mm-hmm. only thing that really stuck out to me there was that Tupac song when uh Yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah, Tupac. I I mean, I've been waiting for them to use The Pac. Uh, I know. I was waiting too. Yeah. Other than that though, I don't really I, remember I, anything else in the episode. And then the song from the end, but that's not a 90s song, right? Well, yeah, it's The Cure. It's it's a um, oh, Pictures okay. of You, The pictures Cure. Pictures of You. By mm-hmm. um I looked it up because I I love that song. And I didn't know who that was singing it. And someone named Lauren Ruth Ward. And it's actually from the sound. Well, at least according to Shazam, it's from the soundtrack of um, of the show. It's not. I think that's been the case for almost all of the songs that the, the outro song. So I think that they probably had these recorded mm-hmm. by these people. I thought the show. that was like an 80s song. I don't know. I, I maybe I, I always think of like the cure is like, I guess they're 90s. But I thought like that one. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure was... when that came out, but um, they've had a, I mean, like, you know, they've had Marvin Gaye, they've had a few other things True, that aren't fair. necessarily spe- specific to the 90s. So we forgot to do high and low last week because we were just so enraged by the episode and it <laughs> devolved so quickly. So, um, Rebecca, do you have any recommendations this week? Sure. Um, my highbrow is something that I actually mentioned in the first episode of this new iteration of the Gold Podcast and didn't bring up since. And that was that they, Little Fires Everywhere, is just straight up ripping off the Good Fight's opening credits. And the Good <laughs> Fight is back. And it is just such a sleeper great show. It's on CBS All Access, which really sucks that it's on an obscure place. But I think you can get it through Prime, too, if you've got certain Prime configurations set up. It is so cathartic and so fantastic, and Christine Baranski plays the lead attorney, Diane Lockhart, who is a woke white woman working in a predominantly black firm in Chicago, and it is just a fantastic show. The season four uh, premiere dealt with uh, Christine Baranski's character waking up in an alternate universe where Hillary Clinton was the president and not Trump, and let me tell you, it was very thought-provoking, but also very cathartic. So my highbrow is definitely the good fight, and enjoy the opening credits, and DM me when you read how uh, explicitly ripped off the show is from that. Um, My lowbrow is very lowbrow and very off uh, our topics of typically sticking to culture, but it's the only thing I can think of. Since we've been quarantined, literally, I think I eat instant ramen twice a day now. And (laughs) my pitch is 
for anything ramen, and especially, I don't know how many people out there have seen Parasite, uh, if you haven't, do that now, but there is a scene in Parasite where they make a Korean comfort food called Ramdan, which is two types of ramen mixed up. In the movie, they topped it with Kobe beef. Because I am poor, I do not have Kobe beef, so I topped it with tofu, but it was delicious. Ramen is the people's food. If you are into ramen, now is the chance because you can get it everywhere and experiment with it. I've just discovered putting American cheese on ramen is actually a delicious upgrade. I used oh. to really like to make my own. Um, I like to grow Thai basil when I can find oh, it. Yeah. And chopping up a little Thai basil and mm -hmm. putting it in your ramen with you know some other greens or something it makes you feel better about eating the ramen yep. in the first place. Totally. And it's really delicious. Yep. Sky's the limit with ramen. So get to it. That's what I got. Carolyn. All right, so for my highbrow, I did not watch this uh, on my own volition. I actually had to watch this for the nose, but I was uh, so struck by it, and it is something that I was just genuinely wowed by, which hardly ever happens when I have to watch something for uh, the nose on WNPR. I watched the uh, National Theater's live filming of Fleabag. Oh, my God. Um, Are you just getting into show. this? Oh. No, 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 no. But I mean, I've watched Fleabag, but the live, oh, yeah. the live show it is amazing. based on. It, it really right. is awesome. So I had never seen that. And I actually am embarrassed to say I was unaware that she had done this one woman show. And that's what generated the show. I did not know that until. It was for the Edinburgh uh, Fringe, week. which is that month long yes, festival. Yes. I actually was in Edinburgh at the time and I had no idea who she was and didn't go. And I will never get over it. Ugh. And um, so anyway, this is on Amazon Prime. Um, you have to pay to watch it. It's $5, but that money actually all goes to a COVID relief fund. Oh. And it is so worth your $5. And uh, she is so amazing in this. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's actually, in my mind, better than the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's, she's a star. Like, I think she's going to be the person yes. that we can't escape in the next five years. She's going to be everywhere. Um, it is her performance. I mean, it is like stand-up comedy slash like a one-woman play. Yeah. I mean, it is so brilliantly done. So go and watch that 100%. She nails that and like razor's thin edge between black comedy and, and deep silliness. It's so it's, good. It's, Just so, so, so good. Yeah. And then if you want to watch something uh, lowbrow, uh, we just recently, we've been revisiting some comfort TV and comfort movies in this time where we feel we need that. Um, and I just, uh, we just rewatched Clue, the like movie based on the board game that came out, I think in the late 80s, I want to say. Uh, and if you've never seen this movie, I have it is, it has every comedy genius. Huh. Uh, Tim Curry. Oh, I love Tim Curry. Uh, like underrated comedy geniuses, really, like Martin Mull and uh, Madeline Kahn, uh, Elaine uh, Brennan, or Eileen Brennan, sorry, Eileen Brennan. Um, you know, it's kind of these people who had these great careers as uh, comedians, but also sort of character film actors. Um, and it is so funny. It is based, it's the board game, but it's done as like a whodunit <laughs> movie. Um, it is so fun. It is just this like great like romp slapstick. Uh, the writing it's campy, but really well done. And it is it's just go watch it. Go have fun. You know, pour yourself a bottle of wine <laughs> and uh, watch Clue. That sounds fun. Uh, I, I 
as a 90s throwback, my friend Patrick, who I've mentioned multiple times because the 90s and he and I were inseparable, um, but he was obsessed with Clue, so... Yeah. yeah. I, my friends and I were so into this movie when I was a kid. Uh, one of my friends, Allie, had a Clue birthday party one year where, like, mm-hmm. you know, she sent out, everyone had a color that they were, and there were, her parents, like, engineered this, like, amazing murder mystery because she lived in this, like, cool old Victorian house. So it was uh, it was actually really, really well done for, like, a, you know, 10-year-old's murder mystery birthday party. I'm definitely I told my partner, murder mystery. I, I told my partner the only way I'll agree to get married is if it's a murder mystery party. Only way I'll do it. <laughs> and I get to die Perfect. in a very bloody fashion. That's all I care about. And I'm only going to weddings from now on that are murder mysteries. Yeah. Because, right. Agreed. Yeah. Um, Agreed. Take... Because even if it's not, even if it wasn't designed to be a murder mystery, if I have to go to one more wedding, it's going to end up yeah. being a murder <laughs> yeah. mystery. I specifically was like, my first choice would be red wedding themed. My second choice would be murder mystery. And Steven's like, we are not having a red wedding themed wedding. I was like, okay, fair. That is traumatizing. It's still too soon. But murder mystery yeah. works. Yeah. Also, I have well, never understood how to play info. Clue. Yeah. Do I don't understand Clue? how to play Clue. I've never been I mean, able to figure it out. I mean, this movie kind of, like, it. other than the concept that, you know, they all have names, like, you know, Colonel Mustard mm-hmm. and Professor Plum, and they have the weapons that are in the game, like the little lead pipe and the dagger. Other than that playing into it and it being in a big mansion... Uh, you don't really need to have any understanding of the board game no. other than understanding those references. And this movie, I mean, I think at this point, like it is, it has just kind of entered. I don't think it probably did real great in the box office. Although, so this isn't giving away anything, but the movie has three endings. Mm. And when you watch it like now on on demand or however you are going to watch it. It just plays all three. Like it says, or this could have happened and then plays the next ending. But apparently, uh, and I was like too young when this came out to see it in a movie theater. But apparently if you went to go see it in the movie theater, the gimmick was you didn't know which of the three endings you were going to see. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's, that's kind of awesome. Uh, but it is sort of one of those like, uh, cult favorites now. Mm -hmm. And, I I would highly recommend it. It is, it has, I I think I would rate it, honestly, in like my top five of movies all time. All right. Hmm. Um, So for my highbrow this week, I just finished listening to a book on Audible called The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek Hmm. by Kim Michelle Richardson. And I don't know that I'd call it a super highbrow book, but it's a book, so I'm giving it the highbrow. Um, Amen. And it's sort of historical fiction. So there were these people in Kentucky who were blue. They had a um, really kind of hard to pronounce. It's like hemoglobinemia or something. But whatever it was, it made them blue. Inbreeding? Um, well, yes, that is often the suggestion, but the first, the first family member, both in the book, they change names and stuff, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the history is the same, um, came over from France, Mm -hmm. the first, the first blue man. And there's actually some suggestion that he was a descendant of the Huguenots and that he, and they called it like. You know, were they a literable, were they literally blue-blooded? Oh, wow. Yeah. But anyway. Well, that's been the implication over the years, right? Is that it was the blue-blooded because they were anemic. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. So 
Um, but so, the, so these people really existed. And I think there may have, act, I think the character sort of really existed, although I'm not totally sure about this, but she's, she's part of the pack horse, um, library created by the WPA and she takes books around to people. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's just a really great story of like a young woman who's trying to be independent and really loves books and understands the power of books. And it's also kind of an interesting racial story because, you know, this is during the depression in Kentucky and there's a point at which it becomes very clear that these people who are blue are being put into the colored category. I'm using quotes around that. Um, and so they're often treated the same way that the black people in the community are treated and they're not allowed to use certain bathrooms and, um, but she's, but they also, you know, this is actually a treatable condition and you can just take a pill and you can be white again. So, um, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, but there's also bad side effects to the drug. So some people choose not to do it and whatever, but, and there's a whole, what's the title? It's called The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek. Okay. The Book Woman of and there's a Creek. whole story. There's a lot of, not mystery exactly, but there's a lot of kind of other things going on in the story that are just human well, stories happening around her. Yeah. Bummed they but, didn't call it Blue Man Group, but I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> um, and you can look the people up. There are actually pictures of wow. the actual blue people. Wow. I'm about they to go down the rabbit like, hole. If you've ever seen someone who's been taking too much colloidal silver, like, um, they kind of <laughs> look like that. But, yeah, it's it's definitely weird. It's, it's, but it's just an interesting story from history that doesn't get told, you know. And so then for my um, lowbrow recommendation, uh, one of the podcasts I love to listen to is True Crime Obsessed, where they just kind of um, talk about true crime documentaries that they've seen. Oh, cool. But for their Patreon series right now, they're talking about Joe Exotic. <sighs> and so you'd have to pay $5 to be to be able to listen to the series. Maybe, a, maybe more than that if it stretches into next month. But um, if you want to hear like a high-pitched gay man and an angry Italian woman from Queens just scream about Joe Exotic, and you probably do. I've never wanted anything more in my life. Yeah, Yeah. I'm gonna need this in my life. (laughs) Like it's it's really funny. The the only the first episode is out, but if you pay the five dollars, you'll get their backlog of other stuff that they've been talking about forever. So uh, it's definitely worth it. Um, It just really they crack me up anyway. But then to hear them talk about Joe Exotic is just so much better. Uh, man, I'm. You, these are good recommendations. I'm also looking at pictures of the blue people of Appalachia right now, and I'm. Me too. <laughs> it looks and like Vira Bowlergard from Willy Wonka. I know. That's what I was about to say. I was like, oh my god, this is they're wild. the blueberry girl in Willy Wonka. They and actually, the real people's name is Fugit. And, wow. And um, I used to work with a lady whose last name that is her last name, and she lives in Kentucky. So oh I God, have to wow. like bother her about this. And see. Definitely, I, it might be her married name. So she and she moved around a lot. So she's probably not related to them. But I need to know if like her ex husband is or something. Um, wow. Yeah, the blue people are interesting. Go down that rabbit hole. Listen to or read that book. It was really good. Wow, this is so great. Thanks, Teresa. <laughs> 
And so many good recommendations today, people. I know. And if Reese Witherspoon <laughs> is out there listening to all our podcasts about her shows, she should definitely consider making a <laughs> making a mini series out of the Book Woman of Troublesome Creek. Yeah. Okay. I'm in. Uh, all right. Well, we'll see you next week, everybody, for the f- wrap up of the series. That'll be exciting. Yes. We'll see all if right. Carolyn's predictions come true. I I don't even I don't know (laughs) at this point I feel like it'll be an electrical fire (laughs) oh right like big twist that's the official big twist